Uh, we do have a kids' class that's available at this time, and that class today meets in the garage here. So, kids, you're welcome to go there at this time if you would like. Uh, typically, the class meets in the room at the back here, uh, but we've got a potluck to follow, and we need the kitchen. So, uh, our nursery's in the back room back here, kids' class back there, and uh, so they're welcome to go there at this time. Well, you can turn with me, if you would, to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We'll get everybody settled here sometime in the next few minutes. Uh, But we'll go ahead and dive in here to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 together. Um, I would imagine that you can envision a judge hitting his gavel on the bench and saying something like, order... Or order in the court. I don't know if that's just in the movies or if that actually happens in real life. I, haven't, I can't have spent much time in court, thankfully. Um, but the judge at that point is telling everyone to behave themselves. There are rules in this room. There are expectations here in this setting. Perhaps the decorum of the court has been compromised. Or perhaps uh, someone said or did something inappropriate. Or perhaps two parties are, are yelling at each other and it's just getting a bit out of hand. Order is integral to the court proceedings, and the judge has every right to demand that. The gathered church is uh, certainly no courtroom. Thankfully, it's, it's so much better than that. But it is a place where decency and order are crucial to the productivity of the gatherings uh, that we have as God's people. And God has every right as we gather to demand order. Many church gatherings are disorderly and they are chaotic. And when that happens, uh, they cease to be beneficial or at least they lose a lot of their value. Disorder violates God's plan for the gathered church. And apparently uh, in the Corinthian setting, in the Corinthian church, though we don't know exactly what was going on there, you read through some of these chapters and you just think, wow, these people, it's just crazy in Corinth. Everywhere you look at this church, it's like they have problems. And it seems that when they gathered together for worship, it was chaotic and disorderly. Uh, You get the idea that you may have had uh, many people speaking in tongues all at the same time, and no one's interpreting those. The same sort of thing may have been happened with something called uh, prophecies. One also gets the impression from chapter 11 and this chapter as well, that the roles of men and women uh, were violated or perhaps completely ignored. People may have been vying for the display of their spiritual gift. I need to get my gift in in this setting, and I need to exercise it, and I need other people to see that. Selfish displays of spirituality seem to rule the day, and the effect of that was the gatherings of the Corinthian church weren't edifying. And so Paul takes this entire chapter, chapter 14, to tell us to strive to excel in building up the church. That's his exact language there in verse 12 of chapter 14. Strive to excel in building up the church. We're trying to help the church be built up. We want to construct it, not tear it down. This chapter addresses two keys uh, to that in worship. Uh, We saw the first a couple weeks back in verses 1 to 25. The first key to edifying worship is intelligibility. Uh, Paul is just laying out this simple argument that it's important for people to understand what's going on and being said. So we have two keys to edifying or constructive worship in this chapter. First, intelligible worship builds up the body. Paul conveyed uh, the importance of this by contrasting uh, tongues and prophecy. So the first key to constructive worship is intelligibility. And the second that we want to look at today is order. God does care about order 
in the church. Disorder violates his plan for the gathered church, while order is extremely important to building it up. So what I'd like to do is ask you to join me in verse 26, and I'm going to read down through the end of this chapter, and then we'll jump into this text together. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, beginning in verse 26, Paul writes, What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So he's, he's starting out by, okay, when you come together, there's a lot that's going to happen in your worship gathering. And all those various elements need to be done for building up the body. Verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak. And let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. As the law also says, If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy. And do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Today we come to a second key to edifying or constructive worship. The first was intelligibility, and now today, order. Orderly worship builds up the body. Now when I say that, you might, your mind might immediately go to an order of service or some kind of very regimented or even a liturgical uh, worship service. That's not really where God goes here, though, in this chapter. He's going to give us directives regarding four different matters in worship, and they might not be what you expect. What are the four matters that God addresses? Well, the first matter is tongues. God gives directives about tongues. Uh, Here at Beaumont Baptist Church, we do not teach that either tongues or prophecy are operative in the church today, but they certainly were in Paul's day. And it wasn't a bad thing. It was a good thing. It wasn't a problem for tongues to be used in corporate worship, but God expected tongues and prophecies as well to be regulated by the uh, tongues by the following three directives. And the first directive is this. You must limit it to two or three speakers. Look at verses 26 and 27. I'll actually beginning there in verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three. If any speak in a tongue, let there be two or at most three. Uh, there's some debate if that's limiting the, the number to two or three tongue speakers throughout the duration of the entire worship gathering, or if it means that not more than two or three were to uh, speak in tongues in a row before something else happened, and then maybe that could happen again. But the phrase at most in verse seven, 27 is probably an indicator that it's referring to the entire worship gathering, that throughout that entire time, at most, two or three should speak in tongues. 
So you must limit it to two or three speakers. And the second directive is you must take turns one at a time. Verse 27 teaches, uh, and each in turn. You can't have more than one person speaking in tongues at a time. That's not complicated to understand. It's pretty straightforward. You take turns one by one. That seems simple enough, but I want you to think with me for a moment about what is implied by a directive like that. What, what that implies is that the tongue speaker is not in some way, shape, or form overpowered in such a way that he can no longer control himself. Certain realms of Pentecostalism or the charismatic movement sometimes put tongue speaking in the realm of uh, uncontrollable outbursts. Out it came, there it was. The Spirit just came over me and I couldn't control it. I just started speaking in tongues. Well, this passage, we're not looking at the the language of irresistible urge. We're looking at something that, according to this text, a a person could hold their tongue. Yes, tongue speaking is the the, the Spirit of God at work, but it it can be conducted in an orderly, one-by-one fashion. So it's limited uh, to two or three, one-by-one, and finally, you must have someone to interpret. Look at verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, And each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Okay, so if you're following this, prior to someone speaking in tongues, they needed to make sure that there was an interpreter present. Again, we're not talking about uh, uncontrollable outbursts. Someone sensed that the Spirit of God was uh, leading them to speak in tongues. And then they went and they found an interpreter. And then they waited their turn. And then they spoke. And then it was interpreted so that the entire church, the the entire body could be built up and edified by what was said and praised to God. If there was no interpreter, the tongue speaker was instructed to hold his tongue, which he was capable of doing. He could go home, God says, and he he could speak to the Lord in tongues in private. Many charismatic and Pentecostal denominations trace their roots back to something called the Azusa Street Revival. It was a Pentecostal gathering that occurred in Los Angeles, California, uh, around the turn of the century, 1900s, 1906. And it was led by a preacher named William Seymour. And the meetings were uh, characterized as being loud and boisterous. Uh, There were all kinds of reports of healings and speaking in tongues and shouting and spontaneous preaching and more. And I just want to give you some quotes uh, from the participants of that to give you a sampling of, of what some people were saying. One person said that the audience was carried into ecstasy of amens and hallelujahs. Emotion mounted higher and higher and the glory of God settled on Azusa Street. Another person says the fire fell. And God sanctified me. The power of God went through me like a thousand needles. Another person said this, The power of God descended upon me, and I went down under it. He's talking about falling on the ground. I have no language to describe what took place, but it was wonderful. It seemed to me that my body had suddenly become porous, and that a current of electricity was being turned on me from all sides And for two hours, I lay under his mighty power. That was a man by the name of William Durham. And one other person here. Someone might be speaking. And suddenly the Spirit would fall upon the congregation. And God himself would give the altar call. 
and men would fall all over the house like the slain in battle or rush for the altar in mass to seek God. The scene often resembled a forest of fallen trees. And he's talking about people just falling in mass there in those assemblies on the ground. Such accounts really don't seem to reconcile all that well with 1 Corinthians chapter 14. What, what all those examples that I just gave you, they sound more like chaos and pandemonium and loss of control. Not the order and control that God described for the gatherings of his people. Because it builds up the church, we must follow God's directives about tongues. And I think a passage like this should help you evaluate what you see maybe happening in the world around you or at various churches and just go, okay, um, are, are, are God's directives being followed here or are they not? Is this good or is it bad? Is it in line with what God said or is it not? And if a church is not practicing God's directives in, a ma- in the matter of tongues, then God is not pleased. Uh, by the way, uh, as I use words like Pentecostal and charismatic, I think it's important to recognize that with almost any term like that, you've got a broad spectrum. Think about the term Baptist. You know, well, like that's really helpful, and then it's not because it's used so broadly in so many ways by so many different people. I think anytime you have a label, you have really broad spectrums. And I certainly want to, wouldn't want to give the idea that anyone who's charismatic or Pentecostal just throws out all the rules. I, I, don't, I don't think that's likely the case. But there certainly would be some of that. And you can argue all day from what you saw or from what you experienced, which is what, we're, uh, what we saw in our experiences, they, they hold so much weight to us. But here in God's word, we have what God said in his book, and it's our final authority, and we need to value that above all. The second matter that God turns our attention to and gives directives on is prophecy. God gives directives about prophecy. I want to read verses 29 to 33. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets for God is not a God of confusion but of peace. Uh, in a previous message, I did my best to try to define tongues uh, to some degree, but I don't think I've done much of that yet at this point with prophecy. And by the way, uh, prophecy, it, it's a huge subject of study in Scripture. So it's somewhat hard to uh, go in great depth in a, a single sermon here. But let's try to get some clarity on what it is exactly that God is referring to here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Prophecy is not a simple synonym for preaching. I, thought, I think a lot of New Testament believers who have maybe grown up in churches that, that believe the sign gifts have ceased, they hear the word prophecy and they think preaching, as if they're equivalents, but they're not. The word prophecy is used very broadly throughout Scripture. In some places, it's used uh, to refer to almost any form of speaking on behalf of the Lord, almost any form of verbal ministry. And preaching would certainly fall under that heading. Other times the word is used in a much narrower sense. And I think when we read about the gift of prophecy in these chapters in 1 Corinthians, and particularly here in verses 29 to 33, the word prophecy, it's being used in a pretty narrow sense. Why do I say that? Well, I want you to look with me at some of the things that are said about prophecy in these verses. If you look at verse 30, what we see there is that prophecy involved the reception of revelation. 
In fact, it's called that. It's called revelation there in verse 30. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, and if you you read the verses there, revelation and prophecy are being equated. So whatever it is that Paul's talking about here, it's referring to receiving revelation from God. Pretty amazing. And verse 30 also mentions someone receiving uh, revelation while sitting there. It generally wasn't something that was prepared ahead of time. Perhaps it could have been, but here, right in 1 Corinthians, God's giving us, telling us what's going on. Someone's receiving a revelation from God while they're sitting there in the gathering of the church. That's what we're talking about, people receiving revelation from God. And, And this does not seem to be a reference to people having the lights come on in their understanding or thinking or having personal insights, we're talking about revelation from on high, from the Lord. And we'll go into even more detail on that in a moment as we work through God's directives for prophecy. But I think that'll help us get into the ballpark here as we begin. Also, don't forget that in this time in history, I think this is, is significant to think about. At this time in history, the church only had a small fraction of the New Testament. We're early in the New Testament era. Much of God's uh, scriptural revelation hasn't come yet. So these people, they would have the Old Testament scriptures and maybe a couple of the New Testament books that we have now. They, They don't have the New Testament in their hands like we do. On this matter of prophecy, what are God's directives? Well, you must limit it to two or three speakers. Look at verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Okay, so much like tongues, two or three can speak in a row. Um, And then what was revealed and conveyed through whoever was prophesying needed to be weighed. And much like tongues, it's not extremely clear here if this is limited to two or three prophets speaking throughout the duration of the entire service, or if it simply means that, okay, two or three can speak, and then the, the prophecies need to be weighed. And then another two or three could speak, and then the prophecies need to be weighed. I think that second uh, idea that I mentioned is probably most likely. But either way, two or three, they've got to be weighed. You must limit it to two or three speakers. And second directive, you must weigh what is said. A few questions come to mind. What does that mean? Well, at a minimum, some kind of assessment or evaluation was needed to see if whatever was uh, prophesied was in keeping with the word of God and what they did know for certain. For example, the legitimacy and significance of the prophecy would, would need evaluated and some kind of verdict would likely need to be reached about what to do with the prophecy and how to apply it and if it was right or, or not. We have a good example of this, I think, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 20. Just note the language of, of these words here. Do not despise prophecies. Okay, th- again, the, the language of Scripture is, this is good. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Okay, Test everything. They need tested. They need evaluated. They need weighed. And who should do that? Well, verse 29 says that the others should. And perhaps that's a reference to the other prophets in the room. Or it may have referred to the entire church. Uh, that said, the next few verses will limit the, the verbal side of the weighing of prophecies to the men. Why should this be done? Why there in Corinth, in the New Testament era, why do they need to weigh these, these, these prophecies? I think we, 
in some ways we feel like we're on a bit of unfamiliar turf when we come to this subject matter. So why did this need to happen? A few reasons stand out. First, the presence of false prophets in the church. 1 John 4 verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And the New Testament church and there would have been all kinds of people peddling their way around, saying they were prophets, saying this and that, and they weren't speaking on behalf of God. Another reason, the prophecies were not on the same level as Scripture. New Testament prophets were not the same as Old Testament prophets. And I I think you hear the word prophet, and you might think Isaiah, Jeremiah. New Testament prophets were not, though, on the same level as the Old Testament prophets who stood up like Isaiah and Jeremiah. And what did they repeatedly say? Thus saith the Lord. These are God's words. Word for word for word for word. The Old Testament scriptures came to us through Old Testament prophets. Who did the New Testament scriptures come to us through? The New Testament scriptures came to us through New Testament apostles. And I think it'd be fair to say that all those apostles were prophets. But the prophecies referred to here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, they are not scripture. And further to clarify a little bit more, the prophecies didn't come with quotation marks and could be easily mistaken. They likely came in generalities. And there's a great example of this in Acts chapter 21. I'll just tell you about this story a bit. There was a prophet by the name of Agabus, a New Testament prophet. He was not a false prophet. He was a true prophet. And he prophesies in some detail what will happen to the Apostle Paul if he goes to Jerusalem. He says, Paul, you'll be bound like this, and he binds him. And he tells about who's going to die and who it is that's going to kill him. And the believers took the prophecy to mean, Paul, don't go. God has spoken. Question, does Paul listen? Does he obey? No, he doesn't. Paul doesn't listen. And he goes to Jerusalem. Did he disobey God? Was Agabus wrong? And as the events unfold, and you can continue to read about them in the book of Acts, it becomes clear that many of the details Agabus gave didn't happen just exactly like he had said. The big idea was right for sure. But the details and the application and the conclusions that were drawn were mistaken. And obviously we can't attribute any kind of error to God. Uh, Nor would it be right to label Agabus as a false prophet. Scripture doesn't do that. These prophecies, not equivalent to Scripture that we're talking about here, didn't come with quotation marks, and they could easily be mistaken and misapplied. Hence the importance of carefully weighing what was said. A third directive is you must take turns one at a time, verses 30 and 31. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. Uh, As with tongues, it's one at a time. And the prophets were to yield to one another. One was standing up prophesying and another uh, believed that the Holy Spirit was moving for him to do that and the one prophet needed to yield to the other. It's your time to wrap things up and sit down and it's time for another to speak. These verses are about order. 
The next directive is you must exercise self-control. Look at verse 32. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. At first glance, I understood this verse to mean that uh, what one prophet says is subject to what all the other prophets think. But upon further examination and study, I don't think that that's what this verse is about at all. In pagan cults, inspired speech was often uh, uncontrollable and ecstatic. And the, this verse indicates that prophecy by the Spirit of God, it's not like that at all. Quite the opposite. The, the Spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet himself. He can control when he speaks and when he doesn't. He can choose to be silent. As one person puts it, the gift of prophecy is under the control and responsibility of the prophet's will. It's not this willy-nilly, crazy, chaotic. People are in control. One more directive is that you must reflect the character of God. Look at verse 33. We have this explanation. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Whatever happens when God's people gather should reflect the church's Lord. He is not characterized by confusion. He is not characterized by chaos. He is a God of order and peace. And the Corinthians' gatherings did not reflect the character of their Lord. The regulations that we've been looking at are rooted in the character of God. I think one person summarized it well. The character of one's deity is reflected in the character of one's worship. As we gather together to worship on Sunday, what we do should reflect the character and nature of our God. There shouldn't be some kind of disparity between those two things. (laughs) There shouldn't be some difference there. Because it builds up the church, we must follow God's directives about prophecy. And thinking about tongues and prophecy, I think there are a few high-level considerations for our gatherings together, especially if we approach this text uh, making the case that, or maybe not making the case, but holding the belief that the, these sign gifts have ceased and are no longer operative in the church today. How might we, what might we glean from this for ourselves? Well, uh, to borrow the words of another person, church is not a forum for personal pontification and self-glorification. In Corinth, it just seems like everybody's vying to get their gift in. And everybody's doing it all at the same time. I got to get it in. And it's about me. Church is, it's not about you or me and any of us exercising our gifts so that other people can see them and us looking really good and important or anything like that. Also, verbal ministry often requires self-control that is expressed by silence. As as God spoke about order, he was repeatedly asking people to hold their tongue and be silent so that order could be maintained. And I think even as we would talk with each other in our worship gatherings or as we would break up for things like table time, we need to let other people talk without constantly jumping in and butting in, which most of us are really good at, right? We should have order and self-control, and we should demonstrate a concern for others and, and, and deference to them. A third matter that God brings up, God gives directives about men and women. Look at verses 33 to 35. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. 
Uh, several weeks ago, I preached a message called Women in Worship. If you missed that, uh, you can go back and listen to that online if you want. Uh, in that sermon, we looked at these verses, verses 33 to 35. Uh, but we also looked at, we looked at these verses alongside two other texts. We looked back at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 4 to 5, and the head covering passage, where in, in that text, uh, it's, it seems very clear that uh, God had allowed for women to pray and prophesy, but they were doing that with their heads uncovered, which was the problem. Not the praying or the prophesying, but doing it with their heads uncovered. We also looked at 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15, where God restricts women from preaching and teaching to men and exercising authority directly over them. Uh, those are the three texts on this particular matter, the key passages on the role of women within the church. And those three texts must be harmonized in a satisfactory way. You have to look at them together. As we come to this text, we have to come to it with those other passages in view. According to verse 34, God's expectation is that women be silent in the church. That is a huge statement. And I just want to, as, as we enter this text again, I want to remind you of some of the things that were said in the previous message and recognizing that some of you weren't here for that. But let me just hit some big points from that. God opens up many activities within the church to women. Prayer, prophesying. Um, many other activities. And we also noted that God closes off a few activities to women within the church. It's just a handful of things, but they're significant and important. What are they? God restricts women, we saw, from preaching and teaching to men. That's extremely clear in 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15. That same passage made clear that God restricts women from exercising authority directly over men. And looking at that principle, we, it's also clear that God... Uh, would restrict women from the office of elder, from the role of pastor. And one other restricted, um, restriction, God restricts women from something related to prophesying. And we worked through that last time in that message. What is it that God is forbidding in verses 34 to 36 when he talks about women needing to be silent in the churches? And the conclusion uh, from that previous message was that God was forbidding women from weighing prophecies. They were not to jump in and authoritatively determine the validity uh, and spiritual significance of, of the prophecies and then be exhorting people on how to apply them. Wrestling with the prophecies is, is something that God tells the women to do at home with their husbands. And if a woman does not have a believing husband, well, then she could certainly do that uh, with the elders of her church. As we look at the few restrictions that God does place on the ministry of women within the church, it's important to note that God's ex expectation is rooted in the Old Testament law. Verse 34 says that what's being called for here is as the law also says. He's saying this is all rooted in your Old Testament scriptures. And Paul may have several passages there in mind. It's most likely that he's referring to the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. That's where he went back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he was dealing with this same matter. Paul roots the roles of men and women within the church and the home all the way back in the creation order. That God created Adam first and then Eve. 
And it has absolutely nothing to do with uh, the significance or superiority of either. It's simply how God arranged it. And it's good. And by the way, it's pre-fall. It's not some byproduct of the curse. Uh, My dad and I have spent some time talking over the last couple months about church Uh, My dad and stepmom have attended the same church for the last 15 or 20 years. My stepmom was there first. And I think at the time that she started attending, it was just a couple uh, hundred people. And over the years, it has grown and grown and grown to thousands of people and uh, multiple campuses. And I know that my dad and stepmom have greatly appreciated that church over the years and have been greatly benefited by its ministry. They were heavily involved in children's ministry there at that church. And uh, sometime over the, the COVID period, they on their staff, they've, uh, throughout the years, I think they've had women um, children's coordinators and, and different roles and stuff like that. And within the last couple of years, it was announced that some of the ladies serving in those roles were now going to be pastors. And that that was happening. And it would be happening in, in just a couple of months. And this church all of a sudden was going to have all these female pastors. And my dad and stepmom uh, loved that church, loved that ministry, but at that point realized, we're not okay with this. This, is, this isn't, we don't think this is what the Bible teaches. And they went back to the scriptures and really just tried, are we missing something? Maybe we, like, maybe we need to really, really wrestle with this again. And they did that and they did it some more. And at the end of the day, it's, oh, like, this isn't right. This isn't biblical. They've since left and found another church. But this is really important. Because it builds up the church, we must follow God's directives about men and women. I find it interesting that when God speaks about order in the church, he doesn't immediately take us to some kind of order of service or some kind of liturgy. He takes us to the role of men and women. A church could have a very orderly liturgy or order of service, but if it has female pastors or elders or females teaching men or exercising authority over men, then God says of that church, that church is out of order. The body is not built up like God intends it to be, but torn down regardless of outward appearances. Proper understanding and application of male and female roles within the church are central to the spiritual growth and vitality and development of any church. And you don't want to let anybody tell you otherwise because the whole trend, it's, it's going that way. Church after church after church. We need, we need women pastors. We need women to preach. Well, God's spoken on the matter. It's a big deal. Well, you might say, I've heard a lot to the contrary, and I'm just trying to wrestle through some of that. Like what? Well, many people would argue that Paul's teaching doesn't apply uh, in this sense. Male headship was a cultural matter related to the customs of the day. And it's no longer relevant or applicable today. You're, You're talking about a society thousands of years ago that was very patriarchal, and it was all, it all had to do with that. We're talking culture. Or you might hear something said like male headship is a a mark of the fall in some way. It's something uh, that the gospel and the kingdom should redeem us from. In fact, I just encountered a sermon arguing that very thing a couple weeks back. 
that notion can actually be dismissed in a moment. What God put in place, he put in place before sin ever entered the world. We're not, we're not talking about something after uh, man's fall into sin. We're not talking about something related to the curse. We're talking about something God had put in place from the very beginning. Before there was any sin in the world. And if there's any confusion about these matters, this chapter is not over God draws our attention to a fourth matter that applies to everything that he's taught in this chapter. Matter number four. God gives directives about his commands. In all actuality, God really just gives us one directive here about his commands. God expects you to recognize everything that he said in this chapter, the directives, the regulations, everything else, as the Lord's commands. They are his. And these commands come from Jesus Christ himself. What that means is that you don't, you don't get to decide which ones hold weight and which ones don't. You don't get to decide which ones apply and which ones uh, you can just ignore. This is not about culture and it's not about the curse. God says, these are my commands. All of them, from tongue speaking to the roles of men and women, they are good. And they come from Jesus Christ himself. Look at verse 36. Paul says, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? Paul is asking the Corinthians about the source of the Bible. Who did it come from? Where did we get it? And who did it come to? Did it just come to you there in Corinth? Do you have the right to interpret it however you want? No, you don't have that right. These commands come from Jesus Christ, the head of the church. You don't sit in authority over these words. These words are above you. You bow and you submit to them. And then look at verses 37 to 38. If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual... So many would have thought of themselves in Corinth. He should acknowledge that these things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. And if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. If a person or a church dismisses these commands and think that they don't apply to them or that they can do it differently and won't recognize God's commands as authoritative and from the Lord himself, that church or person should not be considered submitted and obedient to the Lord. And these commands are ignored to a person's or a church's own peril and detriment. This is a serious warning. These commands must be followed. The building up of the body depends on it. Look at verses 39 and 40 now. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues but all things should be done decently and in order god wants to protect what is good for the benefit of the body he wants prophesying and tongue speaking to happen as he speaks to these people in corinth Again, at their their point in time they don't have the new testament scriptures yet god is working in this way in their midst And God is trying to protect that. He's trying to protect the good for the benefit of the body so that his church can flourish and thrive because he loves it. 
Because it builds up the church, we must follow God's directives about his commands. This is really about the battle for the Bible and its authority. With this last matter, whether we're talking about the, how, how tongues and prophecy, prophecy might work, or the roles of men and women within the church, it really comes down to a battle for the Bible's authority. Is the Bible the final authority or is something else? If you ever find yourself in a church that won't recognize these things that we talked about as God's commands and, and it won't reform, then it's really simple. You don't need to overcomplicate it. Probably what you need to do is just leave. When a church loses the authority of the word of God, that church is done, apart from wholesale repentance and reform. A church that loses the authority of Scripture has lost its moorings. And what you're going to see that church do, once it loses its moorings, it's just going to drift and drift and drift and drift and drift further and further away, and it will eventually sink. You don't want to ride the Titanic with your family all the way to the bottom of the ocean. If a church does not stand on the authority of Scripture, it's only going to go one direction. Like a judge in a courtroom, God has every right to demand order in his church. He's in charge. And he tells us, strive to excel in building up the church. Insist on intelligibility. Insist that that as we worship, people can understand his word and what's being done and what's being said. And insist on order so that God's people can flourish and thrive and grow. That's God's plan for his church. Will you bow your heads with me and close your eyes at this time?